Welcome back to the Jacob's Well podcast. This week on the School of Unlearning, we're looking at Revelation chapter 5. And we're not only going to talk about what's in the chapter, but also how should we look at this theologically and hermeneutically. Wow, big word. So let's get into it. Good morning. Good morning to you. Our afternoon. I don't know. We're off this week. We are. It's a Tuesday afternoon and we're doing a podcast. We're early, not late. Yeah. Which I don't know what that means. I think it means we're, we're even fresher from the weekend. I think it means I'm out of town tomorrow. <laughs> I think that might be accurate. Yes. Yes. What do you, are you doing anything fun? No. Okay, great. I've just got a big <laughs> meeting with some other leaders planning some stuff. Nice. Thinking about every now and again, it's good to get with other thinkers and leaders and say, hey, what's going on and what can we do? And yeah, so kind good. of a think tank kind of thing. Nice. Yeah, kind of fun. It's um, mildly warm today. I think it, it was is. 33 degrees outside. This is balmy for me. This is my favorite <laughs> kind of winter weather between zero and about 25. I just love it mm. because it's, it's, you can be outside and you're not real cold and I'm not real cold. Yeah. I like 30s and 40s. That's there, no, see, that's, that's the worst. I like it. Be- Why is it well, the worst? Because it's wet. The snow melts. <laughs> you can't really get outside. Everything gets muddy. Mm-hmm. And then the air is damp. That actually makes me feel more cold. Mm. I had a dream. I have a dream. All right. <laughs> I had a dream where um, the snow did melt. Yes. It was, like, it was like the last week of February and the snow melted and we were all like, whoa. That would be okay. Maybe two years in a row. So Early, early spring. Who knows? We're going to we're gonna make you the new hedgehog. Or what is it? The, the new hedgehog. I like that. You're the new hedgehog. It can be Sonic. It's going to be great. Yes. I'll tell people. I meant I meant groundhog. But, or not. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> oh, yeah. I speaking of revelation. Yeah, we're going. I am excited hey, for this you conversation. You did the segue this week. I did Woo! beautiful. Thank week. you. I uh, I'm excited for this conversation because I said last week um, the message I got to speak on was chapter four and chapter five feels they feel like so much yeah one in the same absolutely and I'm excited to see how that baton pass kind of happens. Um, and the ramifications that happen in this chapter. So yeah. this would be a fun one. Well, chapter four sets up chapter five, right? It it it, it sets the stage for the drama of what's going to happen in mm-hmm. chapter five. So, of course, in chapter four, you get the great throne, which is making all kinds of statements about the nature of God, the character of God, um, all the different creatures that mean different things, the the powerful animals, the domesticated animals, the, the 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 angels covered with eyes, which is a picture of, I think, omniscience, God seeing everything. Anyway, you get this incredible picture of God Almighty and and all of the angelic reality, you know, the spiritual reality worshiping, all the created reality. The church is there, the saints are there, the martyrs are there, and it's all this message of holy, holy, holy. And just we could just park forever on the, that that concept of holy, holy, holy. It's interesting that he's not known initially as love, 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 mm. but holy, holy, holy. Because what what's being set up is a, a teeing up of the transcendence in imminence of God. So the whole idea that God is, the whole idea of holy is that you are set apart. You are different. You are other. You are so special that you're not for ordinary use, not for you know, you know, and so God is on the throne. He's separate. He's big. He's holy, holy, holy. Um, that is the main characteristic that he's described of. So many images there that you unpack so beautifully in your message. And then chapter four, um, a problem is introduced. 
And then the answer to the problem is the imminence of Christ, the coming close of Christ, the Lamb of God coming close. And the problem that's introduced is this question um, that that once the throne is set up, here's the drama playing out. Okay, um, the one sitting on the throne, and it's so interesting, the one sitting on the throne, because it, it, it's like interchangeable. Sometimes it's the one on the throne who we understand mm-hmm. to be the Old Testament, God the Father, whatever, God Almighty. Mm-hmm. And then it's the lamb on the throne, and then the lamb is taking someone from who's on the throne. And so clearly it's a interchange of ideas and not meant to be understood as a concrete reality, but a symbolic yeah. Can yes. We, can we pause it for a moment? Sure. Because, I mean, that's also alluding to this mystery of the Trinity. Absolutely. I mean, sometimes sometimes we talk because we're trying to be so clear about mm-hmm. the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Sometimes we talk about them as if they are completely separate. Yes. But the mystery of the Trinity is oh, yeah. the three in one. Yeah. T- together they are Yahweh. It's it's yes. crazy. Well, and it's, it, it's a reality that is so beyond our experience and understanding, our point of reference, that we have to fill it with metaphors of Father, Son. Yeah. And so so God exists with all the power and all the value of an individual, the oneness of God, but all the beauty of a love love relationship and within community. So, I mean, he is, he is not either individual or community, he is both and. Mm. And so um, that is beyond that. And then the idea that he would extend that community to invite us to be part of that Trinitarian community, not as a co-God, but as a person who lives in that love relationship is absolutely stunning. And as you were pointing that out, that, that the imagery of when we look at the throne, how sometimes it seems to be the father. That's just a, it's cool how that plays into that mystery. Yes. I also, I don't know if this is helpful for anyone, but I think this is one of those things that we should be encouraged to, to hold intention and Mm. say like, we don't have to fully wrap our, our minds over how can they be if you don't, distinct and if you the same. <laughs> don't hold an intention, you'll break it. Mm. You will make actually you know, Ooh, so that's good. Yes, there there's there's multiple <laughs> we should write that down. That's I know. Right. I was like I was like that's cool. Yeah, that the beginning of your book. <laughs> Paul, <laughs> right there. Don't break the tension. Yeah, and because you'll break the thing you're holding intention. I mean the 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 the, the there, there are like six major heresies in the first 300 years of Christianity around this issue of Christ, the dual nature of Christ, that he's God and man in the Trinity. And every single heresy, right or left, is when one tries to solve the problem by either making Jesus all human or too human mm. and not spiritual and not eternal or making him all eternal and that he doesn't actually exist physically and Gnosticism and all that kind of things. Rather than doing what Augustine and the great fathers of the church did, fathers and mothers of the church did, by saying, this is above our pay grade. Why would we, you know, it, it's us, when we try to force and systematize understanding, we, we act like, well, well, it's weak if we can't understand it. No, it's weak if we understand it. It's mm-hmm. bad theology if we think that we can figure out the divine nature. I mean, how could there not be paradox and could there not be things that are just mind-blowingly, I don't know how to understand that, I don't have enough experience, enough information, That that, but they both must be true, they're both revealed true, and they're both logically true, that if God is the ultimate everything, he has to be the ultimate community, he has to be the ultimate individual. Mm-hmm. That's the greatest thing of which we can conceive, which is an, an Anselm way of thinking theologically, which is a medieval philosopher. Anyway, the point is, is, Man, that that's when I get excited. When I get confused, I get excited. I mean, that that mm-hmm. won't be that mm-hmm. the book. But you understand what I'm saying? Is no, that that's good. I recognize that that this is above me. I'm I'm dealing with the transcendent. So anyway, we're in we're in John chapter four. I uh, John chapter four. Revelation chapter four. 
written by John, and that's important. And then we go into chapter five. And on the five, you have um, the one who's on the throne holding a scroll. And, and this is where I want to talk just a little bit about how we should think about this book, not just theologically, but the big $5 word you started with, hermeneutically. Hermeneutically is a fancy word for interpretation. How we should look at something and what principles, what rules, what um, art and science we should use to accurately interpret a passage of Scripture. Interestingly enough, a lot of this is the same kinds of interpretive principles you'd use in interpreting any kind of literature, particularly great literature, where whether you do Moby Dick or you do, um, I'm, I'm reading right now, a book called Fantasia, um, Fantasties, which is a book by George MacDonald who influenced C.S. Lewis. Mm. But the only reason I'm reading that is because I wanted to see who influenced C.S. Lewis. And what I'm having to do is now read German Romanticism because that's where you get George MacDonald. And you just see these ideas dripping. And you, you, you use literary criticism. And no one said we shouldn't criticize the Bible. We don't mean we're criticizing the Bible. We mean we're trying to figure out what this author was saying to an audience and what tools he used, what linguistic devices, mm-hmm. where he got these ideas. And so so, so we're using some principles of hermeneutics that um, I just, I want people to notice, because um, I kind of pointed them out Sunday, but they're just, they're really just simple. It, and the thing about them is you say, what are these rules? But when you hear them, they're just so self-evidently true. You say, well, yeah, of course, I, I maybe not have thought about it or, or said it that way, but that just makes a lot of sense. So, so again, we, you know, I, my, my, Theology of interpretation is driven by something called authorial intent. You know, in that respect, I'm a strict constructionist. That's a, something you hear about the Constitution sometimes. That is to say, what the original author meant matters. Hmm. And what his original audience understood matters. That's where the meaning is found. Okay? Once you understood what it meant for them, you can start understanding what it means for us. But it can't mean for us what it didn't mean for them. That, that's why, for me, interpreting Revelations in such a way that it was complete nonsense and confusion until about 150 years ago just is a violation of everything that we would understand about Revelation and God and every other part of the Bible we would read. So um, so anyway, th- these are some basic rules of interpretation. So one of the rules for interpretation is use the Bible to interpret the Bible. And particularly, if you have one author who writes in one place— Look what they said another place. And this is, mm-hmm. is exceptionally important in Revelation. So even those people, I, I believe the person who wrote the book of Revelations is the Apostle John. I think that's the clearest evidence. The early church thought that. I just think it's it's something we can say with a high degree of confidence. That's what I think. Others will disagree. But even if you don't agree the Apostle John wrote the Revelation of John, you have to agree the same person who wrote the Gospel of John wrote the Revelation of John, wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And the reason is, is that they use the exact same mm. vocabulary, the exact same linguistic devices, the same theological themes. I mean, things like light and truth and belief and how they talked about things mm. was the same. And so you just recognize that. So like it's, and, and we do this in other literature, there's big debates about did the guy we call Shakespeare write all the Shakespeare plays? And part of the conversation mm. is some of them seem so different that could the same author have totally recreated themselves to do this thing in a different way? Mm. So, so that's the kind of that's the kind of thing you do. And I think I think for any of us reading the New Testament, this should be kind of clear. You look at the four different Gospels. Yes, John is clearly 
the the words he uses, the phrases he uses, the tone of the, the book theology, compared the to stories. the synoptic gospels yes. feels different. Yep. But then you look at the letters, and yep. a lot of them are written by Paul. There's clearly yep. connective tissue. If you look at the at the letters written by Paul, you can tell, oh, this is a guy who kind of had his style. Then you read Peter and and it's like, oh, that's, this feels different. Yep. And you get to John, and it's a stark difference. Right. So I, I think that is evident, like you said, to any yeah. of us that, that read through the New Testament. We should be able to see the, the connective tissue between John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd, John the letters, yep. and then Revelation. Well, and, it, and it also helps us figure out who didn't write something. So like, we mm-hmm. really don't know who wrote the book of the, uh, Hebrews. We right. know a lot about that person and what they were trying to do. So we can talk about this author in general. But a lot of people have wanted it to be the Apostle Paul. It, it's almost inconceivable that it's the Apostle Paul. And there are very few serious scholars who still attribute it to Apostle Paul because the language, the vocabulary, the unique themes, the way he handles the same topics in a totally different way, not not contradicting, but saying different things. And so, so this comes out and becomes very crucial in this passage of Scripture that we look at what uh, what other authors have said and what John has said in this thing of, um, of revelation. So, um, so, uh, so for instance, you have this, this person on the throne taking this scroll and the scroll is described in two or three places in the book of revelation. And it completely, um, matches a description of the throne, a scroll in the book of Ezekiel. Mm. It's written on front and back. And so we understand that when he mentions that scroll and using the language that he's using, everybody would have understood, oh, this is a reference to the Ezekiel scroll. And what's the Ezekiel scroll? Well, it says clearly in Ezekiel that it's a message of woe, lamentation, difficulty. Mm. And then the way the scroll is developed, you understand that whereas Ezekiel's scroll was probably a a reference to the trouble that was going to come to Israel, this scroll, now that you're dealing with the global church and the global world and the, the God who is not just the God of Israel, but now of every tribe, tongue, and nation, this is the, the human story. And so this scroll is a scary thing. It's an intense thing. It's an intense word. And so the idea would be, oh, man, that, that is a, a message about what history is going to be like. And, and again, this passage, this, this part of Revelation is the beginning of what's been called the three series of sevens, seven seals, uh, seven trumpets, seven bowls. So each one of these seals that open up the scroll that allow the human story to be told you have to have someone who is worthy. And by worthy, it means that the idea seems to be here that you have the ability to bring history to its conclusion in a way that both honors the one who's on the throne, his desire for holiness, but also his desire to redeem and love. So who's the one who's worthy to tell the story, human story, in such a way that it becomes redemptive, it becomes hopeful in the midst of what's in the scroll. Because the first four seals are the, are the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Mm. So it's war, pestilence, um, famine, and death. And with death comes Hades, which is actually, um, we think of that as hell. It probably is more of the Greek concept of the underworld and past life and and it, 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 another conversation another day. But 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 that's that's the human story. And it's not that those things are going to happen in the future, it's that they have happened throughout human history and that 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 you have one who's going to bring that, a lamb who's going to come, and and he is going to bring history in such a way that that is redeemed, that that is, um, that is not a meaningless just voyage of the human experience is going to end with everybody dying and this horrible, meaningless, nihilistic kind of thing. 
So the question is, is who is worthy? Who is worthy to open this scroll? And, and it's a very, I mean, we, we read it quickly, so we don't appreciate the drama, but it's a very tense deal where the one on the throne says, who, who's going to be able to handle this? Mm-hmm. Who's going to be able to bring redemption? Who's going to be able to make the human story a story of salvation? And so the one on the throne is asking this question, and it says they looked in heaven and earth, and they couldn't find anybody. And, and, and that's just such an important point of saying, think about that. There's no historical leader, no president, no king, no conqueror. There's no ideology. There's no philosopher. There's no worldview. That if we could just get this, we could get enough education, if we could get enough, you know, um, you know equality or prosperity, that would redeem the story. It says it searched heaven and earth, and no one could be found who was worthy, Okay. And then, then, then it says, John wept and wept because, and, and, and at that point we start feeling just the weight of the human story that, you know, you're not only for John who knew people who were losing their life for the faith, but these are just people who lived with tragedy a lot closer because we, we inoculated ourselves with it, particularly from the West. But these are people who had seen wars and seen death. These are people who you know, famine was a thing there. I mean, a regular routine thing. I mean, this this is a part of the world. The seven churches are in Turkey, an area known for earthquakes. In fact, many of the cities that the where the seven churches don't even, even exist anymore because they were destroyed in earthquakes. So, I mean, this was a place where cataclysm, this was a place of moral corruption. This was a place where, you know, throughout all history, bad, evil leadership comes in and abuses people and hurts people. And this is a place where 40% of the population were slaves. So this was a world that was full of woe and, and limitation. I always think of geographically where it lands. Yes. You're between the European continent yep. you're, and Africa and yep. um, Asia. Yep. Everything you're, right there. Or a highway for invasion back and mm-hmm. forth. I mean, you know, you have nations like Constantinople and Istanbul. And, you know, it, it just, it really is just a, a place of incredible woe. And then, of course, you add it to the whole human history. And even even beyond that, we, we could talk about Holocaust or slavery in America. We could talk about abortion. That in our country there have been there'll be fifty million um abortions. And just what that has done to people and well being and women and to um disproportionately for people of color. I mean talk about all the all the great evils of the world. And if and if there's no one worthy, if there's no one who has a plan, if there's no one no redemption. No one who can bring justice, who can make what is the human story anything but just a tragedy. Even if at the end of it, God says, you know what, I'm going to punish it all. I'm going to punish, because if he does that, no one can stand. That's one of the questions they're going to ask. Who can stand against the wrath of the Lamb? Well, without the mercy of the Lamb, no, no one can, because we're all complicit. We're all part of this human mess. And so so, so he weeps and his weeps. And then you have this incredible... Um, picture that was actually, I, I discovered uh, listening to Tim Mackey in the Bible Project, he, he brought it out just beautifully, this wonderful um, picture of noticing, and this happens like three or four times, I believe, in Revelations, where where John is told to look. He's told to look, but then when he turns to look, he sees something surprising. Mm. So at one point he says, look, I, I, I was told there'll be 144,000, but then I looked, and it wasn't just 144,000, it was every tribe and nation. So it went from just being about Jerusalem and Israel to the whole world. Well, this was an example of that. He says, look, do not weep. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, and uses multiple Old Testament images for mm-hmm. the powerful kingship 
right. The root of David. the root of David. You know, this is all about um, the the language that's used to um, legitimize David's rule and reign, and then the prophecies coming from David of the Messiah. Mm-hmm. Someone will send your throne forever. And so, what you're going to expect from that is the one with the iron scepter, the one who's going to rule the nations, the one who's going to come in and start getting gnarly, right? And and push down the oppressed, and 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 you know the ones the, you know it's it's that. <laughs> That story uh, about when Jesus was about to get, you know, go up to heaven and resurrected, and and you know it, his disciples said the Holy Spirit hadn't come yet, so so there's that, and they said to him, "Hey Jesus, is now the time you're going to usher in your kingdom?" And he's been to the cross. He's tried to show them so many other things that he was trying to do. So they're still asking for him to establish his rule and reign in an earthly kingdom, and I can just see Jesus. I just wonder if Jesus didn't go. <sighs> <laughs> and then he says, the days and the times are not written for you. They're written for God. But, but well, here's what I want you to do. I want you to be my witnesses, martosis in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. And so, and so they're expecting this lion and it says, then I turned and looked and I saw a lamb and a lamb who seemed to be slain. What the heck is this? And this goes back to um, m- multiple Old Testament sources, but one New Testament source, and that's the, the verse we looked at in John's Gospel. And again, just to bring us full circle in the hermeneutical conversation, the fact that we interpret what that lamb means by how John mentions it in the Gospel of John with John the Baptist. You remember the story where mm-hmm. he's got followers, people who said, you're worthy to follow. And then when Jesus showed up, he said, behold the Lamb of God. This is the worthy one um, um, who takes away the sins of the world. I'm not worthy to tie his shoes. He's the one. He's the reason I do anything I'm doing. He's, and then the next day he shows up again. He says, behold the Lamb of God. And then it says John's disciples started following Jesus mm. because he's worthy of being followed, being being obeyed. And so this has to ring. I mean, and not only did John write in his Gospels, but if these people knew John and heard him preach and heard him teach and knew his theology, the, the Jehonian understanding of this, that that's, that's what theologians would call it, would have been ringing in their ears. It would have kind of prickled them. It would have been just some popular reference we would all know, you know. It, it would be like if I were in a sermon I mentioned, you're like a Jedi. Well, we all know the Jedi mystique, and so mm-hmm. it would resonate. So so this would have just been like, we expected to see a lion, but he's a lamb, he's a lamb who was slain, um, and he is worthy. And the whole idea then is that that lamb then goes to the one on the throne, and then I looked at the throne, and on the throne was this lamb. And then the, 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 the picture changes again, and then the lamb goes to the one on the throne, mm. and, he, and he takes the scroll. And by taking the scroll, it's basically Jesus declaring, I am worthy, I am the Logos, which is John's language as well. I am the one who can open this scroll. I got this. I can, I can, I can rule human history in a way that it becomes something redemptive and beautiful, I can rule individual histories where it becomes something beautiful and redemptive. I can open these seals. I can handle the mess. And I've got a plan to culminate this in a new Jerusalem uh, in a most beautiful, wonderful place. So, so, So we see, we learn from John what John meant. So again, these are principles of how we should think about the Bible. And this is, we didn't just arrive at our interpretation of Revelation just randomly. We've actually... Believe it or not, I've looked at what everybody has said about Revelations, including the folks who want to make it a predictive map, map to the end of the world. And I just honestly believe that when you hold it up to this kind of interpretation, that interpretation just pales. That, that's why, if I can just say it, 
uh, maybe I shouldn't say, but I will say because because most most serious scholars don't don't look at this anymore as a predictive map. Actually, very few in the history of history did. There's a handful within a school. The reason it got popular, and you can see this in the um, right now media teaching we have um, from the professor from Ozark. I forget his name. Sorry, I don't have that. Yeah, you could look on right now media. Um, is is it was just popularized um, by really good people who really knew how to spread, a, spread the message, but but we arrive at how to interpret this based on this kind of biblical time honored interpretation principles that go back all the way to people like Augustine. Uh, Augustine. So I mean, um, so John interprets it, and then then there's this other part of it that it then describes the lamb using more symbolic language, saying, okay. How is the lamb going to open the scroll? How is he going to make it redemptive? Well, first of all, he's going to be slain, okay? And we're going to see the power of that because this ram, this this lamb is going to have seven horns. That's a picture of perfect power, perfect power uh, uh, that comes through things like peace and love and service, that which is truly powerful, not guns and wars and political movements. Uh, this is why we see things like Dr. King and um, just incredible pictures of of human advancement through peaceful people, the powerful, peaceful people. By the way, if you're looking for something to watch that really illustrates this, there's an incredible documentary out there called Pray the Devil Back to Hell. It's it's about the Liberian Civil War. I just watched it last week. Um, incredible story about how the Christian women joined, joined actually with the Muslim women in Liberia to stop uh, one of the worst civil wars that ever happened. It's an incredible mm. documentary. Um, powerless in terms of the world, women in Christ's name, did an amazing thing. Anyway, so you have this picture of what is truly powerful, the seven horns, and then you have uh, the seven eyes, which he defines as being able to see clearly, being able to understand clearly, having perfect perspective, which he calls the seven spirits. So again, the perfect spirit, okay? And so the idea is that how how am I going to unveil history? I'm going to die and provide hope and salvation and example, and then I'm going to send my spirit out into the world, and my spirit is going to guide. Who's my spirit going to guide? My people. So then once again, we can go back to John's gospel, John 14, 15, 16, which is the clearest teaching on the person of the Holy Spirit and the work of the Holy Spirit, and see what John says. And this is the passage of Scripture where um, Jesus says, you know, um, don't let your heart be troubled, you know, um, um, I'm going to teach you how to obey me. If you love me, you obey my commands. How are you going to do that? Well, I'm going to send you another paraclete, another comforter, the spirit of truth who's going to guide you in all things. He uses very similar language to this. And so this is all established, clear theology in John's gospel that he would have taught to these people that they would have understood. Mm -hmm. And so for us to understand, this is just him basically saying, my way of redeeming history is one, through the salvation that will culminate in the end times, but also through the Spirit of God working my way through my people, which is things like service and love and sacrifice and justice and putting the first last and the last first, turning the other cheek, going the extra mile. Just this morning I was driving in, I was listening to my daily office, and the scripture portion for today was from Luke's Gospel. And the Sermon on the Mount is, is the technical Sermon on the Mount is in Matthew's Gospel, the one in Luke's gospel is often called the Sermon on the Plain. It is it is even more hard-hitting. It is even more, 
empowering for the poor and the disenfranchised and for for the way of Jesus in terms of all the things we talk about. And so this is a picture of saying, um, um, Jesus coming and saying, listen, I'm going to bring history to its proper conclusion, and it's going to end up being a beautiful story. It's going to be a story of redemption. It's going to be a story of healing. It's going to be a story of justice. We're going to talk about the justice in, in the last part when there's a major section on whether or not God's being fair. Mm. As judge, is he actually fair? Because we all actually have that secret question. Is he actually a fair God in, in, in terms of punishment, reward, and all those kinds of things like that? Another sermon, another part of Revelation. But but this part, it's all about, is he worthy to have a plan? Is his plan, is his plan worth following? Because, again, one of the things I, I tried to mention in the message this weekend is that this would be a very easy message to just get sentimental about Jesus. Say, oh, he died on the cross. That's so great. He's provided salvation. He's so worthy. But what he's really be, what he's really saying here is that he's not only worthy that he's going to provide salvation when we trust him, he's worthy to follow now. Mm. He's worthy to live his way. The powerful way to live is the way of peace, is the way of of love, is the way of service and sacrifice. Even if you seem to lose in the short time, short term, even if it costs you your life, okay? Um, um, because uh, being willing to live and then die for something is an incredibly powerful message, and and, and it is incredibly transformational. And, and that, that was the power of the church for the first 300 years. And so, so this is a call for us not only to say, you know, Jesus saved me, um, but I follow Jesus and I, I, fo- I obey Jesus. So again, coming back to John's thing, John has a, some really direct things to say about, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. Okay. If you're in a love relationship with me and my commands are, it starts with love one another, you know, forgive one another. Uh, it goes to, again, turn the other cheek, all the things we're talking about. Um, just so, so very, very powerful. So this passage, just when you take a little bit of time to look at the symbolism, ask what is the symbolism, and then ask the people who can answer the question, the author. We actually have so much from John about that. Mm-hmm. I mean, and I, I'm not even, I just, my mind's just spinning because there's so much I'm not even beginning to talk about in terms of the last section of, of, um, the book of, of John, where he, it's kind of right before he goes to crucifixion, he has this big debate with the religious leaders where he talks about their father being the devil. Mm-hmm. And it is absolutely powerful. He's basically saying, you're following the dragon. You say you're following God, you're your children of Abraham. You say, you know, God is your father, but you are a liar. You've learned to live lies from, from the dragon. Um, and this incredible warning, it's all just an echoing Actually, Revelations is an echoing of that, the rest of what we're going to see in Revelation. Now, having said all this, I haven't even touched, I haven't even mentioned Sunday or anything else, one iota about the Passover lamb, about the lamb being slain and all the Old Testament imagery that brings this as a picture of salvation, all of its connection to communion and um, and the Lord's Supper. I mean, this is what's so frustrating about doing something like this. There are layers and layers and layers of meaning that, I mean, just make you almost weep for the beauty of it. And, I mean, the intelligence of John and, you know, the, the brilliant masterpiece. I mean, even if you didn't believe a word of this, from a literary perspective, it is brilliant. And, and honestly, if, if you're going to honestly look at this literarily, 
And you, you look at what would have had to be done in the Old Testament and then in the gospel writer, and then this, to make this all click together with the foreshadowing of the prophecy, there's no way. I mean, you just have to say, either this was the most brilliant plan of literary foreshadowing among not just one author, but how many authors Mm -hmm. over centuries, um, or there's something divine going on here. There's something that is, is much richer, much deeper than anything we could imagine. I mean, so um, it's just, it's just th- this, this is when reading the Bible and interpreting the Bible gets fun because it just comes alive. So I don't know. I'm just, I'm geeking out a little bit here. <laughs> no, a- as you were going, I had a couple of, of thoughts come across my mind. W- one of them was um, there's the description when he looks and he sees the lamb and then yes. the lamb's on the throne. And then there's this conversation or this moment right and it reminds me of um so what i was looking up was psalm 110 Mm. the first verse it's it's so interesting when you find parallels to the old testament yes um verse one says the lord and it's in all caps yes (laughs) the lord says to my lord yes all caps yes (laughs) sit at my right hand until i make your enemies your footstool it's uh it's such an important example in the old testament of some sort of conversation happening yep between the Father and the Son. That, and th- that text is actually the primary text for Peter's Sermon on the Day of Pentecost as well, mm. making the very same point you just made that, okay, and, and this was David writing about his Lord and my Lord, and so there's actually three levels of Lord there. Mm, and sure, so, yeah. And so a basic, and basically David's point was, talking to a group of Jews who would have all known the reference, said, who was he talking about? And then, uh, spoiler alert, Peter says, he's talking about this Jesus who came and was testified by miracles and rose from the dead. I mean, you know, no one, I mean. Yeah, we're not inventing this right now. No, who's, who's <laughs> foreshadowing this? I mean, if it doesn't mean that, what does it mean? Because mm-hmm. it's kind of nonsense if it doesn't mean that. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, and, you know, and there are a lot of people who said, well, I just believe those biblical people are nonsense. Well, I actually believe they were at least as intelligent as we were. Mm. And I, I don't think they would have written something that they would have just considered just nonsense. I think they actually thought about these things deeply. And they, they you and I had this conversation the other day, I think they have the ability to think on levels we we think we can, but we don't. We can look things up. We have a lot of information. We talked, it's <laughs> this idea of chronological snobbery. Yes. This idea that we think that every coming generation is somehow so much more advanced, so right. much more intellectual than any person who's come before. Right. And and there's advantages of having hindsight, certainly. Mm-hmm. But I mean, like the Apostle Paul probably knew four languages. These are people who did math that we still can't replicate. Mm. I mean, th- these are people who just, I mean, they couldn't look stuff up. They just right. knew stuff. And so, um, yeah, it, it truly is a, uh, a masterpiece in that respect. You know, the, the beautiful thing about this then is that we then start getting um, so many of the songs in Revelation in this next mm-hmm. part. And, and the response is, is just this, this worship experience of agreement. So you end up having this song that basically is sung over and over again by different parts of the the throne, the the great throne community. And the theme is the same. You are worthy. Worthy is the lamb who is slain. You are worthy. And so you start with having, you know, um, all the redeemed, you know, those ones who um, are holding the bowls of incense and those bowls are going to come back. It's different than the bowls of wrath. These are bowls of prayers. Mm-hmm. They're actually meant to contrast with the bowls of wrath. We'll see that later when we talk about the bowls of wrath. Um, the prayers of the saints, those ones who were redeemed, 
they and they break into this song, you are worthy to take the scroll and open the scroll because, why? Because you were slain. You showed a better way. You brought redemption, but you also gave us a template of how then we should live. Um, with your blood, you have purchased men for God from every tribe, language, and people. And that is so huge. This used to be just, and this goes back to Ezekiel too, this, this idea of being a regional God. In ancient world, you know, this was the God of this nation, this nation, this nation. And Yahweh was the God of this lang- this people. And they live in, he lives in Jerusalem in this temple. That, that's what actually makes Ezekiel's prophecy so important. So Ezekiel was the prophet, prophet um, who was taken away into captivity. Three major prophets. Mm-hmm. Isaiah was before the captivity. Jeremiah happened during, the middle of his book is in the middle of the captivity. And then Ezekiel is the prophet who was in captivity. So he he prophesied from Babylon. And so the book began by the rivers of Kabar. So a muddy little tributary of the, uh, of the Euphrates, I saw visions of God. And what he was saying is, God showed up where I didn't expect him. I thought, mm. this was a priest, I thought I had to go to the temple. And I, but he shows up in this incredible wheel within a wheel. It's another theophany. And it's basic, and, and that theophany has special emphasis of his um, omnipresence. It's wheels that can move in any direction. It, it's this incredible picture of, I am the God who is everywhere, and I am the God of everyone. And that message that even, it even struggled to sink into the Jewish minds comes to full fruition in the book of Revelations, that this is every time, every nation, everybody is included. I mean, it's just this glorious bursting of song. And then the redeemed sing, and then the heavenly court sings. So these angels, and it says there's thousands and ten thousands of ten thousands of angels and angelic beings. And, you know, there's there's there seems to be this kind of heavenly court, the spiritual reality. Even the Psalms foreshadow it. Some of Job is foreshadowing it. Um, they sing, they agree. And then you have the created order. Every beast agreeing he is worthy. And then the last part where it talks about the four living creatures and the elders, those are representative of the voice of God himself. That even God himself, the eternal one says, yes, he is worthy. So there's this universal agreement in time, space, and dimension, in earth and heaven that he is worthy. And so the great throne, which is the holy, holy, bursts into an even bigger thing of not only is he holy, transcendent, he's worthy to come into this mess, to open this scroll, to be close to us. I mean, it, it just, it's, a, it's a, you get chills. I mean, it's just this incredible picture of the one who's worthy. And so, so again, the, the temptation would be for us to be in awe of this, minds blown, what a wonderful thing. But at some point, oh, please let it come back and, and say to us, okay, if this is true, um, am I living like he's worthy? Do I really think he's worthy? Do I really think he's worthy of me following? Um, if, if he's worthy, am I going to obey him? And if obeying means when someone comes and slaps me, I turn the other cheek. I go the extra mile. I don't just pick up a gun or I don't pick up a, uh, I don't fight them verbally. I, I, I understand what Paul means when he says, um, though we wage war, we do not wage war as the world wages war. Because he says, we have been given divine power, seven horns of power to demolish arguments. The one who fights with the sword of his mouth. That, that's how Jesus comes, not with the sword in his hand, sword in his mouth. So if that's what he means by obedience and that his way is worthy, 
well, then we have to re-challenge our whole paradigms. We have to ask deeply, you know, am I living like he's worthy? Am I honoring him? Are my loyalties to the way of the lamb? Even if I, I mean, because I actually do think there are people who, who feel like they're being loyal to the lamb, but they feel like at the end of the day, when push comes to shove, I got to do the dragon's thing. I got to use his words, his way of going, his slander, his worry. I got to, I got to protect the lamb using the way of the dragon. And, and this is where it gets really deeply questioning about all of us have to come back and say, not, not about, you know, Hey, I got a question whether our shoe is going the way of the lamb or the people I disagree with. It's easy to see the devil in other people. We're going to talk about that this weekend, but to see the devil in me, to see the dragon in me, to see where I'm not living like he's worthy. I'm not honoring him. I'm, I'm not obeying him by choosing the way of love every time. Um, that's where, that's where it gets, um, pretty serious. And, and, and that's why, you know, ultimately again, remembering we've talked a lot about this book being the author, John, the audience was the seven churches who are being tempted to go the way of the dragon. The, the seven churches that, um, are being called to overcome. And that, that seminal verse, that crucial verse in the, in the midst of chapter 12, where it talks about the dragon, we're going to get there. Actually, we're going to start there this week. We're going to be there for a while. Um, how do you overcome? It's just the one overcome. It says you overcome by the blood of the lamb and the word of your testimony. And the word of your testimony means living out the testimony. Not so much what you say about your testimony, but what people say about your testimony. Mm. That that person was faced hate and they brought love. That person was vilified and they still chose character. They chose, still chose goodness. That person was beat up and despised and they're still working for the common good. Why are they like that? Why are they, 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 they have been cursed and they bless. I mean, they're praying for their enemies. They, I mean, early church, they were dragged into amphitheaters and coliseums and put to death and they're singing and they're praying and they're joyful and they're not cursing. We've seen so many people die in this auditorium under Roman oppression and we're used to seeing empty threats. So I'll get you all or curses or, you know, begging friends to avenge them. Those Christians were different. What, what the heck is that? That's why it's powerful. That's why the, 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 the righteous testimony of the godly even shames the ungodly into more righteousness because they say, what did they have that they would live and die like that? You're overcome by the word of the lamb and uh, the, the blood of the lamb and the word of your testimony. Yeah, so um, again, this book just feels like now is the time I needed to hear from this book. I just felt we as a people need to um, hear from this book because just in this age where we are so divided, we are so driven by ideologies and and um, perspectives that actually actually seem like they're opposite. And we're going to discuss this in a couple of weeks too. They're not opposite at all. Uh, they're just different versions of the dragon. They're just different versions. And is there a third way? Apparently, Jesus said there's a third way. There's a third way of love. There's a third way of love. Uh, anyway, so, yeah. That's good. I think I get this excited again. This passage just came alive to me, man. It just uh, came alive to me. Yeah. Love it. Yeah. Do you want to close this out in prayer? I do. Father, what can we say? We want to say it with our minds and our hearts and our mouth, but oh, could we say it with our life? You are worthy. 
You're worthy because you are the lamb who was slain. Thank you that you didn't just come immediately as the lion who roared, wiping out evil because I would have been wiped out. We all would have been wiped out. But you came as one who brought redemption. You're not just the God who is beyond us and over us and more than we can understand. You're also the God who is very close. You are imminent. You are incarnate. You are with us. You are the lamb who was slain. Help us to believe this on a level and in a way that it shapes how we live. Teach us, Father, to live the way of the Lamb, to obey, to ask deeply what does it look like to love in a world where everyone is about slander and gossip and hate and power and wars and weapons and and just anger. Father, what does it look like to be a person of love? Father, these are not easy questions, and yet um, we want to ask them. Even if it costs us everything, our position, our standing, even if we gain scorn and disrespect, even if it costs us our life, help us to walk the way of the Lamb, that we would give testimony, we would be martos, we would be ones who witnessed that the Lamb is worthy. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.